Off the Beat finally returns after eight long months with a brand new series called Off Season Chats. I'm Kiran Rajagopalan. And I'm Amaya King. As we prepare for season two of Off the Beat, we're also chatting with dancers who move and inspire us. Last week, we shared our conversation with Mumbai-based Bharatanatyam dancer, curator, and entrepreneur, Kirtana Ravi. If you missed that off-season chat, you can still check it out and binge on season one of Off the Beat across all major streaming platforms and on our website, offthebeat.dance. Off the Beat is a passion project, and we really need your help to make this podcast a long-term and sustainable venture please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash offthebeatdance so that we can continue to bring you more content. And together, we can create a new dance future, one beat at a time. We continue our series of conversations with dancers who are forging new paths in their artistic, personal, and professional lives. Today, we're going to have an off-season chat with our second guest. She is an Odissi dancer, researcher, and educator, and she's the assistant professor of dance at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, a consummate performer and scholar whose interdisciplinary work spans digital humanities, queer studies, and religious studies. Please welcome to Off-Season Chats, Kaustavi Sarkar. It's a pleasure to have you here, Kaustavi, to our podcast. I'd like to start off with a very simple but very broad question. Tell us about your artistic journey. Well, if uh, given the permission, why not bring in my mother? All roads lead there. She took me to an Odyssey class and I never left. <laughs> I always was someone who had 100% attendance, <laughs> um, sometimes to annoyance, uh, to annoying degrees. <laughs> But yes, my training in dance probably can be said eclectic a little bit. Indian standards, I say, because versatility is a part of the training in your American sort of concert experience. However, I was not only in Odyssey, I also did Amala Shankar. I continued that for 20 years, performed with their company until it existed, it dissolved. And then I was also in Odyssey very, very heavily. So today, when I reflect back at those moments, I didn't know all those different terms. But today, as I reflect back, I think one was contemporary and the other is perfectly classical. I do feel that that eclectic training really set me up for my scholarly position in um, the United States. Because I do think if I did have the only classical experience, it would be hard for me to understand versatility as well as I'm able to understand now because the idea of a pure body, Anga Shuddhi, that you really clean the limbs in ways that really articulate a particular style, a particular nuance, a particular aesthetic, where little differences between Kirani or beautiful Bharatanatyam and and my Odyssey, (laughs) little differences can really look jarring and rightly so, rightly so, they can look jarring to the concept of Angashuddhi. Anyhow, I was really confused (laughs) in my early 20s. I didn't know what I was doing. I got degrees in economics 
again I didn't know better and and then finally I literally failed in that subject right like I didn't just enjoy it I took a job in New York and it was thoroughly unsuccessful at it and also miserable and then pretty much I did not have the focus and the means or even the desire and even the infrastructure and the vision right I'm taking it upon me and sharing my literally being lost in the horizon for at least a good four or five years right and then my ex and I'll again uh, <laughs> I, I will have to congratulate him for showing me my path like my ex was a drummer and he told me that you should do a PhD in dance and it did not occur to me I think I found my intellectual sort of niche and I was really not getting that intellectual environment in the freelancing dance people can just read all the time you don't need to be in any degree or get an institution however I will say that for me the PhD provided a perfect ecosystem to really understand what I want and I really understood that I want to dance I want to speak from my body and in order to speak from my body articulately I needed a constant intellectual as well as a constant embodied practice and that would be my artistic journey in a nutshell thinking about embodied practice as not just artistic, but also deeply scholarly. Whenever we do interviews, sometimes when we talk about artistic journey, we talk about like a straight path. But for many of us who also deal with economics, for example, or deal with just, you know, life circumstances, the path towards professional dance is not always clear. When you had made the decision to transition to professional dance, was it because you also wanted to be able to engage with it professionally through scholarship? Or was it more about the embodied practice? Honestly, I was just happy to be in a PhD program. I was really happy to start thinking about dance because I was already dancing either in solo or in my guru's company. But the idea of just dancing was not cutting it for me. And I speak for myself only. For me, this idea of professional dance what does that mean does that mean a gig economy does that mean dance and higher education does that mean dance and business and arts management right it can mean so many things I think one thing was clear in my head that I did not want to waste my time doing things that I'm not good at and I don't think I'm good at anything else other than dance. So that was pretty much survival, Kiran. I mean, I'm not even being facetious. Finally, I'm in an ecosystem where I don't have to think of doing something else. And thanks for mentioning economics because I did not want to be a dancer who does not know how to pay the rent. I did not want to be a dancer who did not want to be a responsible citizen. I will never be a millionaire, far from it. <laughs> However, I don't care. Excuse me, why do we, why do we celebrate them again? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, tell Elon me, Musk. <laughs> tell me why. The nonsense of it all. I mean, you know, some of them are smart. Not everybody, but we celebrate <laughs> everybody. Coming back to, I just did not know what else to do. And then thankfully I found this, which was like, okay, I can put food on the table. 
with this minimum little stipend that I get from my PhD program, but I can put food on the table. So that was important to me. But at the end of the day, I was able to really put 24 hours or whatever, 16 hours or 10 hours into dance. And that was the only thing. And there are so many aspects of it, right? As you mentioned, there is scholarship, there is writing, there is dance practice, your own dance practice, practice learning new things from your gurus or working with choreographers, working with the company, working with other dancers. The day is less. Right? For us, the day is clearly not enough. <laughs> we need 36 hours in a 24-hour day. <laughs> and this is true of most dancers who do other things besides dance. Not that dance in and of itself is limiting, because dance is extremely expansive. You can easily dance for 36 hours in a day. But when you're, you know, when you have a family, when you have a partner, when you have a job, it just never seems like there's enough hours in the day. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely something that Kiran and I often uh, commiserate about, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to ask about your intellectual dance journey. You mentioned that your ex had suggested doing a PhD in dance. But I, I want to go back a little farther. This intellectual side of dance, how did you start becoming aware of it? I'm joking, but also, you know, paying my dues to my ex. But at the same time, I'm trying to note or notice I was missing something in the dance practice. I was missing something in just the touring, the incessant touring if you are in a professional company or your sometimes touring if you are a soloist, right? Like either way, I was missing something. and. I really did not know how to articulate it. I'll be honest with you. I did not know if I was looking for feminist theory. I did not know if I, if I was looking for, I don't know, arts management. I really did not know what I was missing. I will say that the colonized minds that we are in India or, you know, in many places in the world, it's very hard to make a quick link with the rich textual tradition that we have and the practice. And I see this with a lot of shame, right? Like it's such a rich scholarly tradition of any of the traditional dances, right? Or, or dance in general in India, it's just a rich tradition. Whether you take up aesthetics, whether you take up more spiritual texts, whether you take up literature and architecture and all of those, right? The rich textuality of dance, that's there. That's just there, right? But I did not know how to access it. And even now, I'm just slowly discovering the wealth of it all. But the shift, I think, you know, it's it's not a paradigm shift like enlightenment, right? Like Ahambrahmasmi, that didn't happen, <laughs> I wish. But I was, I was just enjoying my time in NCPA. I remember the, there is this library in NCPA Mumbai. And yep. I spent every day in the month of May, every day, going there and doing research for my writing sample, for example. And that was probably the first time I got interested in textuality in dance or I was, I came in proximity with textuality in dance and that's unfortunate and I take responsibility for it. My formal education was always verbal and that was, I don't know, K-12, higher education, undergrad, grad. And then dance education was vocational. So that uh, dynamic was a binary dynamic and it's problematic in so many ways. And I appreciate the non-linearness of my career path. 
I appreciate the failures I had to deal with. I could not value what I do today as much if I had not gone through those miserable moments in my life. So I had a follow-up question for what you just talked about. So you mentioned that, you know, you were you were testing out queer studies and feminist theory over the years of being one that not only values and really embraces embodied practice and textuality and the textual aspects of dance. Is there sort of a frame of reference that has guided you in terms of where you wanted to situate your artistic and your intellectual voice and dance into? Thank you for that question. I center myself in Odyssey today, a little removed from everything else that I have done. I've dabbled with Bharatanatyam a little bit, but it's it's far removed. So my body is an Odyssey, and I, I think about the richness that Odyssey provides in terms of its curvilinear aesthetic, its curvature, right? That's the that's the beauty of it. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that <laughs> for visual demonstration. Sorry, um, viewers, you can't see this. It's on Zoom. <laughs> Sorry, your loss. Anyway, so <laughs> this this idea of of curvilinearity takes me to queer theory takes me to engage with scholars who are looking at text and talking about orientation and curvilinearity and curvature right they are looking at text they are looking at literary texts or they are looking at visual art but they are not necessarily looking at odyssey which is all about curvilinearity and can really speak to a queer aesthetic so for me, it's it's interesting that way. It's a thought experiment, but also I'm careful to not make facetious remarks, right? Queer studies emerges from a Euro-American standpoint with a subjectivity that's grounded in liberation and grounded in this notion of queer sexuality. So I also have to make a strong case of the interesting dynamics of gender and sexuality in the Odyssey history. And I see that and all of us can claim that in so many ways, right? Like in Odyssey history, we have Gotipuas, little boys who dressed up as girls and danced and their dance was nothing close to nothing related to gender and sexuality but definitely there was this notion of questioning binary gender or even subverting or even having different worldviews altogether in terms of how how one can categorize the world. One of the things that I had always struggled with, because I did a performance studies MA, was this very question of how do we take these Western paradigms, these Western concepts and thoughts and theorems, and apply it to Indian classical dance? I found it very problematic and very challenging personally. So I've kind of veered away from trying to navigate an academia in that way. And I found myself in a very defensive stance many times in my MA program. And I say that very frankly. Did you have any sort of similar experiences of trying to work with what was presented to you in coursework, for example, in the PhD program, and trying to reconcile or not even reconcile, but see if there is any sort of intersection point between Indian classical dance and Western theories in academia? Thank you for that question, Kiran. It's really important for me to engage with that. So I want to quote this line by Brenda Dixon Gottschild from her chapter called Barefoot and Hot, Sneakered and Cool, Africanist Subtexts in Modern and Postmodern Dance. 
This is from her book, Digging the Africanist Presence in American Performance. And I am quoting a line from page 55. To know the mainstream culture and play its game, but also to remember and keep one's own. That is and has always been the task. So I say this because it, it is applicable to you and me, Kiran, what the mainstream culture is and play its game. When I was taking my candidacy exams, right? For PhD, you have to take your exams. You have to pass them in order to convince people that you are eligible to do research on your own. My reading list was all about ballet and modern. So did I find myself in a defensive stance? Yes, I found myself in a confused <laughs> stance. I was like, what am I doing here? But nevertheless, I survived. I think you have to survive and convince people in their rules of the game in order to then prove or make your own rules. Go, if I'm going back to my dissertation, I use deconstruction. I use Jacques Derrida. I should have steered, steered away and used Advaita Vedanta. It's as deconstructive as, you know, one could get. But again, that's where I'm saying the easy link between theory and practice is not easy for Indian dancers. We are deeply colonized. We are deeply colonized. Our brains go to English language texts first than to Sanskrit because we don't know Sanskrit. I don't know Sanskrit and it's my 10-year plan to learn Sanskrit, but I'm still not there. So that's what I want to say about this notion of really having discomfort with certain things. And I feel that we need to stay with the discomfort. I don't think we can afford to whitewash that discomfort. We do need to stay with that discomfort, push back as much as we can, as much as the power structures allow us to do, but literally push back. And then when we can really make, make our case. That's the struggle right now with a lot of colleges and universities and higher education institutions that want to have a diverse dance curriculum, but they don't understand exactly what that means or exactly what kind of support a dance style, whether it's Indian classical dance, Bharatanatyam, Odissi, Kuchipudi, Kathak, whatnot. They are expansive styles much in the same way as ballet is. And so it deserves the same kind of treatment and respect as a pedagogy. But that case has been hard to be able to convince many of those dance department boards that it's more than just a, quote, diversity checklist, a diversity experience, a one-off cultural experience. It's an actual pedagogy that could be truly beneficial. There's a lot of rich topics to unpackage from what you just said about decolonizing the mind and decolonizing practice. And what does that look like in an Indian paradigm versus a Western paradigm? Absolutely. It's definitely, there's a lot of different directions that, that we could go here. I definitely resonate with you about the difficulties and you sort of have to determine the rules and then figure out how to work in that space. I know for me, at the end of the day, at my alma mater, it was the theater department where there was a home for me as a Kuchipudi dancer. I have no idea what their dance department like looks like, never set foot in there, but it was the theater department and, and the rec center where I had space and, and not for the lack of trying. I'm wondering now that you're sort of past your dissertation and now you're in the role of a professor, how are you navigating this? How are you, I guess, changing the rules? Thank you for asking. Amea, that's 
a hard one. I'll just be honest with you. Welcome to Off the Beat. <laughs> you know, critical infiltration of the the dance studies scholarship has been happening since 2030, perhaps even more years now. But the technical infiltration, what you mean as not just recognition of multiplicity as fluff, but literally recognizing the pedagogical imperatives. So for example, Odyssey. Odyssey can make my dancers at UNC Charlotte, University of North Carolina at Charlotte, strong in three clear ways, right? I can articulate those skills. I don't know, curvilinearity, energetic awareness, containment, rhythmic percussivity, right? Like so many Musicality. More. Musicality. So many ways, right? Bring them literally more alive in space. Bringing the self into the dance versus the detachment of self that's very characteristic of postmodern dance, right? Right. So really engaging with the mind, body, soul, if I may say that dangerous word, but at least the, the 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 whole the holistic self instead of not thinking of the face or not thinking of the fingers right so there are so many ways i could enrich but amaya do i want to do all the work myself there are five valley teachers teaching an entire curriculum there is only one odc teacher what do i do how much do i do and then yeah. i'm not even hired there as a technique teacher I'm hired there as a dance study scholar. So I could simply sit and not never dance, right? But I will die, right? That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Hashtag above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I continue to remain interested. Technical infiltration in ways that matter right? In sporadic ways here and there, we have a strong curriculum in Wesleyan University. We have electives of Odyssey and UCLA, right? Like in many ways, this has come up. NDEO has many, right? National Dance, yes, Educational Dance Education. Educators Organization. Awesome. So the, all these places, we do see classes offered in, in Indian yeah. dance practices. But yes, I do feel Work needs to be done. Kiran and Amaya, sort of like, you know, get ready. Work needs to be done to really think of technical infiltration into a dance studies curriculum, BA program, BFA program. What does that mean, right? And then also think of the pedagogy that we are all invested within. And it's it's perhaps it's different, but, you know, we did come out from a one-on-one -on -one apprentice learning, Guru Shisha Parampara, or whatever it might be. And then I wonder, right, someone with 20 years of, or say 14 years of experience with a teacher, why would she come to my beginner's ODC class? Why? What does that mean, right? There are those things also to wonder, right? How do you tap in someone who grows up in this country with a rich tradition, right? And then why would that person take a beginner's class as an elective in a university department. I'm really thinking of it in so many ways. And, and I want to do this thought experiment, this, this workshop, and perhaps you guys should organize it. And we should just pour our brains out. 
how do we make this work? It's not an easy answer. There are so many sides to it. What do we want to do? Firstly, do we want to train dancers that are never that are not exposed to Indian dance, but we want to nevertheless train them in that rigor? Yes, we want to do that. Do we want to tap in the rich diasporic population that we get who are trained and then, you know, get them more interested in artistic pursuit of dance? Yes. Show yes. them a viable path, right? Yes, Show them a viable path. path. Those two are very, very different populations. How do you yes. contain both of them in that same department, right? So it's just a hard question to solve, but it needs to be solved. And the third equation is, what are the existing structures in place and how does it situate itself in those structures? I'll give you an example. Like you, I had to just teach a technique class that was subsumed under modern dance. It was very clear to the students that the course demanded at least two sections of the week in order to really be fulfilling. Because they found it to be compelling because there's tools that you can actually give students of other styles of dance that are really useful. Like whether a student wants to go into, say, Broadway, the theatricality and the mimetic quality of Indian classical dance is perfect. It teaches you a language of how to engage with expressive dance. But we have actual techniques and tools at our, in our tool belt, right? in terms of nuance of lyrics and in terms of nuance of soundscape. But how does that live with other existing systems of dance pedagogy that are in place is also another variable, right? Totally, totally. I'm thinking of Jack Cole because we <coughs> talked about Broadway and we are, we are talking about Bharatanatyam, right? Like Jack Cole experimented a little bit with Bharatanatyam, but really bad version of it, right? Like really, <laughs> really bad version of it. Yeah, I've seen those. I've seen some of those clips. Right. But then like... Yes, yes and yes to all of those other things that you said that we have techniques of feeling intelligibly. You were talking about the textuality of dance. And I think there's a fixation of written text that is there that has also led to this kind of propaganda about Bharatanatyam being an ancient tradition and all that kind of stuff. But it's part of an oral tradition and a textual tradition that may or may not have intersected at all points of its history, right? I agree. I, I really feel, be it Bharatanatyam, be it Odyssey, the dances that we're talking about are Kuchipudi, the dances that we're talking about here have a rich textual tradition, be it scholarly, be it poetic, be it aesthetic, be it spiritual, be it religious, all of those. It's really, really rich. And unfortunately, the colonized mind and I speak for myself, I did not make that connection. I was not taught that way. Hence, I was not able to make that connection as easily, right? Eventually, with scholarly training, I'm able to make that connection. And, and that, is, that is the process of decolonization, right? That is the process of really unfurling those layers from your mind. Would you say that, you know, an investment into scholarship is like an investment into the craft of dance, like the craft of decolonizing the mind? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the decolonizing the mind is necessary. First of all, university itself is, one can say, is a colonized space. It's a neck up space. So first of all, decolonizing the mind with the body, right? The, the richness that the body has to offer, that exists in its entirety and then the and the all the cultural dynamics and the othering and the appropriation all of those things that go alongside so i'd like to ask this question what is the best advice you've received during your dance journey the best advice okay i will say this decide for yourself what type of odyssey dancer you want to be decide for yourself what type of odyssey dancer you want to be 
And I say this with humility. And I say this really believing that Odyssey did not come with me or doesn't care about me. It will continue to exist in its richness and sheer magnanimity and exuberance. But nevertheless, I do think that I do not want to be churning the same wheel again and again. And I do feel there is a little bit of stagnation and mediocrity in the field because we are doing this commercial product-based copy-paste model. Although we wouldn't call that, we wouldn't call what we are doing all those words, but they are, they are pretty much arts management terms. And every iteration of Ardhanarishwara that one person does, or whether I do, is different. So I realize that. But nevertheless, how you establish critical difference in that every iteration, right? That's important. And also it's important to think about not continuing any oppressive features, not continuing patriarchy, not continuing conservatism. So it's it's important to me. As, As a person, it's important to me. And I know my field suffers from some of those issues. In terms of the copy-paste phenomenon, I feel like that especially kind of comes to the forefront with the way that the social media landscape intersects with with the dance scene today. What is your take on on social media and has social media played a role in in your own dance journey? Well, yes, social media is sort of a very easy go-to in order to disseminate what I'm doing, right? So definitely social media is important in today's world. Whether you engage with it wholeheartedly or you distance yourself from it, I do feel I cannot neglect its role and importance in the field in which I continue to function. But I will say that I did use social media very, very heavily and as a survival tool in my professional journey, especially during the pandemic. And I say this It was survival because I did feel a lot of alienation in the pandemic, right? Having been left alone in a house, I did wonder about what's next. And also I wondered about why dance? Why dance in a pandemic, right? I was, I was, I was like questioning my, my choice. And I think it's important to pay attention to the shifts in the body mind, especially some of us who are very keenly in tune with ourselves. We are very keenly attuned to our chakra system or yogic journey or whatever it is, right? But yes, social media was the place where I did my research. I just had this Sunday morning chat and I did that for over a year. Every Sunday, I invited two artists. I called it Speakeasy, Life in After COVID. And pretty much, I I had a good time myself. And sometimes I had large sort of Facebook live views and sometimes perhaps not that large. But overall, I will say it was a good experience. I got a lot of it in terms of really understanding what people are thinking in a pandemic, right? How are they living? How are they engaging with dance? Like if I still had my show, I would have invited the two of you. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you, What are you working on right now? Do you have any projects that you are doing? Any sort of initiatives that you've launched? Yes, I'm excited about this upcoming project that I'm going to show in New York on May 7th. And the festival is called We Are Dancing. 
and it's being curated by Maya Kulkarni and it's being presented by a company known as Alokam. There will be performances in Kathak, in Shilpanatyam that Mayadi does, Odyssey and Kuchipudi. The project that I'm doing is called An Impossible Romance. And uh, this was conceived by Mayadi and it's being choreographed by Mayadi. And this project is thinking about or rather dancing the romance between a cloud and a lightning. Right. And how that's just ah. impossible. Right. Like it's just an it's death is imminent. The, the, <laughs> so <laughs> that's how it's, it's the impossibility factor. Right. Aren't you breaking a Nacha Shastra rule by showing death? I'm clearly breaking <laughs> some rules. I'm clear, I mean, some people I mean, some people will be like, and this is part of my research. Right. Like I really am interested to think about difference for thinking about difference. I don't have to collaborate with a ballet dancer. You know, collaborating with the Bharatnatyam choreographer itself is so different, right? So, so, so different. Oh my gosh, yeah. Can you believe that? I can only imagine. Right. So it's very interesting when Mayadi, you know, shows movement sketches or notes a particular sort of evocative um, mood, right? It has to be technically translated in Odyssey right by my body and and the processing the by the mind and that itself is interesting to me as as research because i do feel that indian classical artists you keep working with your guru right and both mm-hmm. of you speak the same language and there's richness in that there's definitely richness in that but nevertheless for me it's very interesting to think about what this difference leads to no that's very compelling because a lot of dancers who start to collaborate with other artists of other genres, it can either be something that's extremely fruitful or something that just doesn't really take off. But either way, it's research and it's learning. It's something that you just keep in your bank of information as a dancer and as an artist. So with that, I'm going to have Amea segue into our final section of our interview. <laughs> So this is something that we're just going to have a few, hopefully fun questions. Rapid fire. If you had a theme song, what would your theme song be? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm not a very good test taker. (laughs) But okay, um, I have to think fast. Theme song. I I could do... um, Data to Ganapati Gajanana. Lata Mangeshkar's Hamsadhvani Bhajan on Ganesh. I love it for some reason. I really love it. It brings you joy. It brings me joy. That's all that's needed in a theme song sometimes. <laughs> just joy. When do you listen to it? Do you, is that part of your... It's part of my morning yoga practice. My morning ah. yoga practice starts with that. <laughs> I love it. Fill in the blank. If I could collaborate with anybody, dead or alive, I would choose... Blank. Chandra Lekha. Ah, interesting choice. Why Chandra Lekha? She would chastise me a lot, right? Like, I think (laughs) she is this gorgeous, emancipatory beauty, right? And she would be like, why are you so regressive? I would just love it. I would just love to be chastised by Chandra Lekha. I would just love (laughs) it. Funny story. My person probably be Sanyutta Panigrahi. For kind of similar reasons, because if you watch her performances of some of those traditional standard Odyssey items, like, for example, you look at her Moksha Nada, I don't see anybody now performing it 
like how she does, right? So she kind of is just like, I will do it my way. And then I hope she would say to me, you do it your way, but do it nicely. Number three, if you could perform only one piece for the rest of your life, what would it be? Okay, it clearly has to be something that I grow every time I do. And that would be Ardhanarishwara. Because of its yeah. richness and textuality and the richness of Guru Kirichwar Mahapatra's choreography and the absolute richness in the musicality of Pandit Bhupaneshwar. It's just rich, rich, rich. It's Mishra Raga, Mishra Tala. You could go infinitely deep in any of those ragas and talas. It's just rich. Champaya. That's great, Kiran. So, I'm Amaya, so you know, I always say I'm like a I'm a I'm a closeted Kuchipudi dancer, but I'm a huge fan of Odissi too. So I like know all the Pallavis. <laughs> I was I was in I was in um, Bichitananda Swain's institution of Draksha. Whenever I come to Bhubaneswar, I'd stay in that house with the boys. And every time they would have Odissi practice, I would have finished my rehearsal, and he would say, "You need to join this class." And I'm like, "No, I'm dead." He's like, "If you want to eat, you're going to dance." <laughs> so it was in that class they were working on Shankarabarnam Pallavi. That's my theme song, I think. <laughs> oh, that's a beautiful song. Shankarabarnam Pallavi is beautiful. <laughs> and Bichi Bhai is just a rigor. Anyway, so we digress. But Amiya, next question. All right. When you're traveling to a performance, train or plane? Plane, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. But, it's, I, but I say this having traveled literally a lot in India in train. Like I have been a part of two professional troops, actually three, right? Like my Odissi guru, Guru Poshali Mukherjee, my Odissi guru, Guru Ratikan Mahapatra, Sujata Mahapatra, and Amala Shankar troop. So nothing solo, nothing fancy. I have really done a lot of train <laughs> traveling for my dance teacher's company. The worst train station in India, fill in the blank. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> he might be going off script. I think so. <laughs> okay, let's say... I've heard. I've never been to um, Varanasi. On a more cheerful note... <laughs> Favorite meal after a performance? I love spinach. Huh. <laughs> like Popeye or something. In what form? <laughs> sag form. Sag. You know uh. sag? I love sag. And the older I'm getting, I gravitate towards all things green. So yes. <laughs> Palak paneer. Oh my God. I would You're love it. You're speaking my language. <laughs> yes. 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 What's one thing people get wrong about you? don't know what people get right about me. <laughs> I've given up. At least the one thing that they, they can control me. I'm soft-spoken. So they can control me. That's just not happening. Softness is strength, actually, right? Like dancers, no. Softness oh, yeah. is way stronger. Most dancers, whenever you walk into a room, you're probably the strongest person in the room. Because you really understand. You're able to carry yourself. Please say that one more time. <laughs> That's an affirmation if I've ever heard one. Whenever you have entered a room, just know that you are the strongest person in the room. And if the room especially has no dancers, then there's no doubt. You are physically, mentally, socially the strongest person in the room. Love it. What does your best friend tease you about? My lack of proportion. Or my lack of <laughs> my, my lack of sense of proportion. 
you know, I, I, I have very many good friends. I don't understand best friends. This idea of best friends, right? It's, it's a little too, I don't know, cheesy. Come on. <laughs> but, but I have this friend, Monali Nandi Mazumdar. She also does OTC with me. And she makes fun of, you know, the amount of chowl, amount of rice I would put in the pressure cooker, right? Or amount of like salt I would put in uh, food. <laughs> and I'm I'm not proud of my cooking, but I cook, right? Like in this country, I learned very early on, you have to cook, right? That's the thing. And cooking is also reminds me of home. So I cook, yeah. but yes. <laughs> now, are we talking proportions within a dish or proportions of the dish? Both. Excellent. <laughs> so say, say I'm just cooking for you, Amea and Kiran. I'll probably cook for 10 people. That's how I live my life. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best thing that happened to you this week? This week just started, right? <laughs> but I will say that ACDA, American College Dance Association, the Randolph College experience that I just went this past weekend, as I came back on Sunday, Sunday night, it's a three hour drive. I think it was very, very so fulfilling just because it was a gathering of dancers, students, teachers, performers, a lot of youth spirit, right? Mm. And yes, it's you're American by standards, and mine was the only remotely Indian piece <laughs> that they saw over the weekend. But nevertheless, I think it was very fulfilling because I celebrated with dancers in person after after yeah. quite some time. And the one particular piece I will talk about, if honey aged like whiskey, and the choreographer is a student from Virginia Commonwealth University. Her name is Ashanti Brantley. Oh, VCU. Yes, VCU, yes. where you live. Yes. And her piece was very interesting. It was evocative. It was very intelligent. It was very beautifully executed. There was a lot of musicality to it. Her piece really made my day. That's awesome. Now, one thing that we do as part of our episodes is, is try to have a call to action for our listeners. What would your call to action be? It's very important for dancers to understand the purpose of their training. So my call to action would be to urge dancers to think about the purpose of their training. We see so many artists invested in training and then a graduation recital and that's the peak of their journey. That's right. And that's okay. That's cultural training also, apart from artistic training. But really think through the meaning of the training and I do feel it's a lost opportunity of sorts when a lot of pressure comes from Indian diasporic parents to live up to certain standards of lifestyle or what's accepted as professional careers so really yeah. thinking through the purpose of training, and that goes to anybody anywhere in the world, uh, but in particular contexts where I function, because you do spend quite a bit of time in your craft. And why are you doing that? I, I feel that that one hits home, right? You see these kids walk into class when they're five years old, six years old, and you watch them grow up into these, you know, young men and women who are off to conquer the world. 
And then all of a sudden they think they just have to put away 13 years and just put it up on a shelf and, and look at the pictures every now and then. It's, it's a little heartbreaking. And, you know, when you talk to students like that who have had a deep connection to dance and they end up doing that, oftentimes those conversations are really bittersweet because it hurts a person, right? Then, you, of course, you have the students who were forced to come to class who will discard dance once it's done because they associate, you know, some bad memories with it. And then you have people who were not necessarily like close to dance, but when they either become parents themselves or they grow up, they start to really appreciate it and they come back to it in whatever way. Equally important are those who support dance. And many times it's those students who come to appreciate it that are also equally important to to the sustainability of dance at large, right? So true. All the things that you said, very, very true. I think what needs to happen is, you know, there's, I'm listening until you're a prodigy, right? And even if you are one, there's just so much that you can do until 18, right? There's just so much only you can do. So deep investment by artists beyond that Mancha Pravesh, Arangetram, right, is very scarce, that is when you mature. That is when you actually, you know, really flourish. And that's why there's mediocrity, right? So it's not possible to to have higher standards and growing standards if there is no infrastructure, as you also mentioned before, Kiran. There's no infrastructural support. So a lot of work needs to be done, really. A lot of work needs to be done. To prove to not just Indians, but just people at large that the arts are viable and the arts are critical and vital to any sort of ecosystem. Absolutely. And something that you guys are doing here, right? Like this this itself is an interesting engagement with arts. Like, for example, when I look at my phone in the morning, uh, my podcasts, right? I want to have more of these, right? I want to hear more of dance shows, but I don't know. There's nothing. There's so much more to dance. Like, you know, music is so much more than just sound. Dance is so much more than just movement, right? Amea was the one who had the idea for the podcast, but it was her that got me thinking about the expansiveness of of how we talk about dance. It doesn't always have to be necessarily just through our bodies and just by what is seen. And thankfully for this space, because, you know, what is seen is great. And and definitely there, there is a space for that. But there is no space to, to do this, right? To, to really share your journey or artistic process or what you're thinking. And that, that I'm excited by Chandralekha, right? There is no space. I am appreciative of this space that you're creating. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, this is sort of the formal end of our questions. But is there anything else that you wanted to share with us? The only other thing that I want to, I'm thinking about is, you know, I'm I'm really excited about an ecosystem of thinking dance artists, Indian dance artists, of both Indian and non-Indian origin, of course, who are thinking about the field and who are thinking about the vastness, the beauty, and the possibilities of growth of the field. And I'm hoping that in my university, on an annual basis, I'm able to create a space where professional artists can come and really share their richness with each other, either in terms of collaborative works or sort of brainstorming or just working groups or just a, a space of catharsis. Yeah, that's that's my dream. And I'm hoping 
I'm hoping and I've been able to create small ecosystems for Odyssey only, but I'm hoping that there can be a South Asian dance studies colloquium where yeah. we are able to come together. And Kiran, you and I both share Rohini Acharya as friend. Currently, I'm working with her on a journal initiative. But in any case, I do feel hopeful of, of a South Asian dance studies colloquium at my university. What do you think about where the next generation of dancers are taking dance? Bittersweet, right? Like I'm thinking of the kids that I'm responsible for. And they are hard. Any of those skills that we impart, right? Discipline, boredom, repetition, all of those things are, are, are not easy to sit with one form again and again. And there is glamour in repetition. Otherwise, it wouldn't look good glamorous on stage, right? So it's not an easy answer. I mean, I'm having a little bit hard time navigating that. But I'm always excited about youth spirit. It was such a pleasure to have you on Off-Season Chats, Kaustavi. We thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for agreeing to be a part of this and, and making time and space for us. Today's episode of Off-Season Chats would not have been possible without the support and encouragement of our amazing listeners and the following people. We edit podcasts for audio engineering, Sangeeta Kaushik for graphic design of our logo, and a very special thanks to Wesley Beeks and Bertel King Jr. Like what you heard? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about us so that more people can find this show. You can also join our conversation by following us on social media at Off The Beat Dance on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or by visiting us at www.offthebeat.dance. We'd love to hear from you. Join us next week for an episode of Off-Season Chats with Sai Ganga Dharvengut. Off-Season Chats is an Off the Beat production.